This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. Well, we haven't run out of history quite yet. Welcome everyone to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. My name is Tony Black and with me is Duncan Barrett. Hi Tony. How are you Duncan? You're right. Yeah, I'm not bad. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. I'm I'm wondering if anyone knows who we are, who is listening to this at this stage. <laughs> you may recognise my voice uh, from Trek FM's own Standard Orbit, where I've popped up a couple of times, and Duncan is been on Metatrex before. I have. Yeah, well, you most recently guested on a two-part episode which explored uh, historical connections through... DS9's Season 6 Essential Trek Philosophy, which I know the guys on Metatrex have been going through and doing all different seasons. And that was, I think we can both say that was one of the main inspirations for the show we're bringing you all today, really, isn't it? I did, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's right. I um, I feel like I sort of co-opted that episode of Metatrex. It wasn't meant to be a two-part episode. That was just because that was me banging on for, for too long about World War II <laughs> history, um, which is kind of it's kind of my patch, basically. I, I write uh, popular history books, um, generally about the Second World War. So uh, I think I was sort of bringing my, my passion uh, there, <laughs> and I just uh, I went on for so long that in the end they decided they'd better split that interview into two. Um, but yeah, it did make me think, um, you know, then, then you got in touch with me and you're talking about doing doing this project and I sort of thought yeah actually there's quite a lot to um uh to bring to that I think in terms of looking at uh, the relationship between uh real world history and Star Trek and also opening it out a bit to look at literature and, and film and so on and and aspects of our real world uh you know what Deanna Troy in First Contact calls a primitive culture that's that's kind of us we're the primitive culture and how that feeds into the kind of imaginary 23rd 24th centuries yeah and that's that's essentially why we're called Primitive culture, really. That's um, that's where when we were batting around show ideas and thinking, well, we, you know, we've got the general idea of the show in that we want to cover all these, you know, historical parallels and these connections to Trek. You know, as as p- two people who are hugely, you know, Trek fans and have been for years. Uh, and and it, I think it was you who came up with the the Deanna Troy thing, and I was mm. like, yes, that fits. <laughs> <laughs> well, otherwise we were going to be stuck with you know cultural treks or, or historical treks or, or something along those lines. I just thought we should uh, try and come up with something different, just to just to stand out a bit in some way. <laughs> I don't know, and also to try and cover all those bases in a way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that that's that's the big thing. You know, if you're listening to this, you might be thinking, well, what kind of what kind of show is this going to be? You know, episode by episode. What are we going to be, you know, talking about? So we thought we'd, you know, com- go into a little bit more detail about that and maybe our in- inspirations for this a little bit more before we talk about our, our main uh, first discussion topic. And we've we've picked a discussion topic that we're both very interested in that we've done, you know, we've researched, which is um, looking at the historical figure of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And he was the scientist who invented the atomic bomb in the 1940s uh, at the end of World War Two. Uh, and how he as a character was reflected in two guest characters who appeared in uh, Star Trek Voyager and Star Trek Enterprise. So that's going to be our main topic that we're going to talk about in detail later. Uh, but before that, before we get there, what what kind of show are we going to be bringing people every uh, every episode, Duncan? Well, I think the way I see it, and I, I hope that we're on the same page with this, is that we're going to try and, and keep it as varied as possible. So, you know, we're looking at... Uh, a 
pretty solid kind of historical story this time. This is a real historical person and these characters were quite explicitly based on him. Um, I mean, if you read, go to Memory Alpha, read the interviews with um, with Ken Biller, who wrote the Voyager episode, with Brannon Braga, who obviously wrote most of Enterprise. Uh, you know, this, this was a very conscious decision to base these characters on Oppenheimer. But then maybe next week we might be looking at uh, a literary topic, looking at... Um, you know, Moby Dick in First Contact, something like that. The week after, we might be looking at uh, a film, at a sort of cinematic uh, debt that Star Trek has. So we're basically treating this idea of culture quite broadly, um, looking at it in terms of our history, our, our literary culture, our you know other forms of creative culture, and the way that really the writers of Star Trek have drawn on all those things, um, because they're not just coming up with ideas in a void, you know, partly because they're, they're historically were bashing out, you know, 24, 26 episodes a year. They're, they're pulling in all directions to try and get inspiration um, and that's really what we want to look at is from a writing perspective where where do those inspirations come from absolutely yeah and I think you know we want to keep as much as we can in, in a historical frame you know and, and looking at things uh, looking at culture through that through that lens and looking at as you say it where all these you know all these great stories came from you know as you know and as many people know Star Trek the majority of Star Trek has a very real-world basis, you know, from all kinds of things, even even down to you know the the basic template of of all the different races. You know, you can, uh, and we'll, I'm sure we'll go into this in a future episode. But you know, you can uh, look at like, the Federation as analogous to the you know you know United States and and the and you know the Klingons as the Russians and all these kind of different things. You know, there's 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 a lot to talk about in the Star Trek universe. As we as we've been discussing this over the last few weeks and coming up with the the podcast itself. We've had a significant amount of ideas, I think, haven't we? That we've <laughs> we have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've probably got enough ideas for the next year or two episodes. So, yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> so if, if only, you know, doing it all is as easy as just coming up with these right. ideas off the top of our heads. But um, but we'll see which of those make it uh, make it through yeah. in the end and which we, we ditch <laughs> later on. <laughs> well, and I'm sure there'll be, there'll be a few. There'll be a few along yeah. the way. But oh, yeah. I think... It, as well for us, you know, you're you're a you're a writer, you're a historian. I'm a writer of I'm not I'm not a historian, but I love history. I do write, I do obviously podcasting elsewhere as well. But I've I think we both have a real interest and love of history. So I think it's it's and culture and it's something that we're found we found certainly even with this first episode, we found ourselves educating ourselves on things we didn't or didn't know previously. So if we can share a little bit of that knowledge without being, you know, ponderous. <laughs> Yeah. then that will yeah, yeah. be part of the you know the mission statement as well I think won't it oh absolutely I mean I have to say you know yes I write I write history books but I I, I know quite a lot about a number of very small uh, <laughs> you know kind of minor minor <laughs> areas I mean I'd say I know I know I know a lot more about Oppenheimer now than I did a week ago certainly so and I think that's the way it's going to be uh, for a lot of these episodes is really you know we're probably only a few steps ahead of the audience but we're you know we know what topics we want to look at and we're going to go and and do the research and, and hope Hopefully, uh, come to the podcast, you know, reasonably well briefed on what it is that we're talking about. That week. <laughs> yeah. We can hope. That's that's the idea. That's the idea. <laughs> that's the idea. Yeah. <laughs> and if not, we'll just wing it. Uh, <laughs> but if you know, if anyone out there, you know, who's listening, has ideas for episodes or you know particular topics in the, from the Star Trek universe that you know link to our culture and our history, you know, do feel free to let us know. You know, get, talk to us on the Babel Conference and, and over Twitter, Facebook, etc. You know, let, get involved. Let us know. And, uh, you know, we can, I'm sure you've got tons of ideas as well as we have. So, you know, we want to, we want to really dig deep into this and mine into some of these amazing concepts and these amazing ideas that Star Trek has and really sort of unpick in many respects where they came from, which is the same as where we came from, which is the whole you know, idea of, of Star Trek and the big adventure. So this is kind of our big adventure, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's not just, I mean, we're talking about it historically, you know, it's history to us. Uh, in some cases, that the, the things that we're looking at at the time, you know, they weren't history then. I mean, you know, when the original series is dealing with the Cold War, that's history to us now. But, you know, that was current events. That was kind of ripped from the headlines. Similarly, Enterprise dealing with 9-11 and the, the Iraq War and so on, the kind of aftermath of that. You, you, you know, we can just about start to begin to look back on that period as a kind of as a historical period in a sense although we haven't quite escaped from it yet but but you know it's partly also looking at what are the conditions that produce these stories what are what are the influences on these writers where are their ideas coming from and and 
that could be many different directions. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think, you know, as, as we said before, there's lots of d- different directions that we can go in. So, uh, yeah, I think I think we're very excited about this. We hope you guys are quite excited to see where we go with it. And uh, this seems like a good as a good as point of it as any to um, launch into our our first topic um, this week. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the main central figure who our first topic pivots around, and that is, as I mentioned before, the uh, real life historical figure of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Who, uh, well, Duncan, who was? J. Robert Oppenheimer. So, uh, the, the J stands for Julius. I only know that because I, I looked it up on Wikipedia. But he <laughs> went by, by Robert Oppenheimer. Or Oppie, as uh, as he was known yeah. colloquially. Um, and, and I suppose the reason that that maybe is relevant is what's interesting, I think, and particularly when we look at these scientist characters in Star Trek who were based on him, is we tend to have this image, I think, of the the scientist as this sort of solitary genius who works on their own, who who is kind of antisocial and, you know, can't necessarily deal with other people. Actually, Oppenheimer was almost the opposite of that. He was a professor of physics at the University of California in Berkeley, and he was a very popular, very charismatic teacher. And one of the reasons, actually, that he was chosen as the guy who was going to lead this massive uh, endeavour to try to to build the atomic bomb was, was not so much because he was the kind of lone genius who was the only one who could understand it. It was actually because partly he had quite a broad understanding of various aspects of science. He could do the, the really cutting-edge theoretical stuff but he could also do the kind of more applied stuff but it was also really because he was a people person he was this inspirational teacher he was used to working with large groups of people with inspiring them and I think that's what they felt really as they they had this you know the army was putting together this project they were drawing on the greatest minds they were bringing in all these geniuses with their idiosyncratic eccentric difficult personalities and they really needed someone who could kind of pull them all together and get them working on the same team and, and get the best out of them and in a sense that's what they got in Oppenheimer um, it, it was quite controversial apparently at the time that he uh, that they chose someone who hadn't been awarded the Nobel Prize which he you know he hadn't and and because there were sort of better scientists essentially out there that they could have chosen but they chose this guy and um, seems to me they probably chose the right guy because it was a, an extremely difficult job that you know, required all these different people and their different expertise and so on. And he seemed to be able to kind of hold it all together somehow and keep that project running. Yeah, he, he did really. He was um he was a fascinating figure, Oppenheimer, in that he's he's known in many respects these days in very mixed terms, in that he as the far as the you know, as they say, the father of the of the atomic bomb, is is obviously being to a degree a little bit simplistic. You know, it, the the atomic bomb and the creation of, of what eventually the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki was, was very much a massive combined effort in Los Alamos, which was uh, in New Mexico, which is where Oppenheimer built the laboratory based on places he'd been in his childhood. And he had a great deep love of the area uh, around Los Alamos. He'd spent many times there. He used to horseback ride there with his brother and with family friends all the way through his youth. And he built Los Alamos. He wanted Los Alamos built as a place that he could feel like he was completely at home. And an entire community built up around the creation of this atomic bomb. And Oppenheimer was the, he was that inspirational, as you said, that inspirational leader. He was that central figure, but he wasn't a traditional leader. He was a very, he was a very thin, way for thin man. He was, he was eccentric. He was a bit nervy. He had difficult, complicated relationships with his family, with women. He was married and he had various different women. He didn't have a problem attracting women, but he had very difficult, complicated relationships with people. So he wasn't a traditional leader in the in the you know, military sense, and he, he, he had to deal with a lot of very different people. He had to deal with military generals. He had to deal with politicians. He had to deal with the overhanging spectre of many people believing he was a communist as well, which at the time was... You know the worst thing you could possibly be in the in in America. You know during the war and especially after the war. So he was he wasn't people. People nowadays think of him. You know he's that famous quote that he he took from the Bhagavad Gita. You know he's very he was a very spiritual person as well. He did a lot of reading. You know now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds, which has been popularized over the last you know half century. But he wasn't like most fat people. He in this kind of role he wasn't that simplistically drawn, and ultimately he was. In many respects, he was a liberal. He, he had very left-wing kind of sensibilities, which is what drew him into very flirtatious you know, elements of, of dealing with the Communist Party in the 20s and the 30s before they were demonised. So in, in later years, he ended up becoming somebody who 
in many respects regretted what he'd created. You know, the Pandora's box he'd opened. I think if he could have shut it again, he would have done. Mm, absolutely. I mean, and I think, you know, it, it may be that when we look at these characters of Jatrell and Degra, uh, we sort of need to a certain extent to to recognise the difference between Oppenheimer the man and Oppenheimer the myth, because I think in later years, he, you know, he, he was opposed, he did express opposition to the proliferation of nuclear weapons, to the development of the hydrogen bomb and so on. Um, so I suppose he, and, and he expressed, you know, he expressed this sentiment that you've mentioned very famously quoting the Bhagavad Gita. But there's a kind of tension there, you know, he wasn't necessarily always the anguished scientist. He he said when he was asked, I think, something that um, Jutrell says as well, he, does, he didn't regret what he'd done. I mean, there were other scientists on the Manhattan Project at the time before the bomb was dropped who were having more serious qualms who were sort of saying are we are we sure that we're doing the right thing and and there were you know there were kind of moves to say um especially after germany surrendered because i think that when they were all brought on board the germans uh, under heisenberg were developing their own nuclear program and it was very much a race to see who would get the atomic bomb first and and that country would win the war then obviously once germany had surrendered um the the terms of what they were doing changed completely because there was no longer this threat of annihilation the threat was to their soldiers uh, out fighting the Japanese and, and obviously many American soldiers were being killed and there was a desire to end the war quickly. But at the same time, there wasn't that direct threat to their entire country, to their entire way of life, you know, to their ability to win the war. And I think that did change the conditions to a certain extent. On the other hand, the army had put, you know, millions of dollars into this project. They weren't going to just say, oh, all right, we don't need this weapon anymore. So there's a sort of sense of like, did it, you know, once the, the train has started moving, what can what can they do? But there's also the question of how much are the scientists really responsible? Because I think what Oppenheimer would have said, which, you know, is, is something that comes up, um, certainly Jutrell makes this argument as well, is that ultimately he was doing the science. You know, he was developing uh, the, the scientific methodology needed to make the weapon. He wasn't the one deciding who to drop it on or, or you know, whether to drop it or not. That, that, that's sort of someone else's decision and, and that has to be left to them. So there's this sort of idea, I suppose, of is science, and maybe we'll come to this a bit more when we talk about Jutrell, because there are some great discussions in that episode about this subject but you know is science kind of morally neutral or, or and does it have a kind of intrinsic value in and of itself or or is it impossible to separate that from these kind of moral questions and and what is the responsibility of the scientist in that situation it is that moral quandary it, just because you can do something should you and and this this is the whole thing Oppenheimer is a fascinating case and it is reflected in in Jutrell and to a degree Degra in that what he was doing, in fact, probably more so with Degra, what he was doing, he was doing because he he was a patriot. And he was doing, in, in his eyes, he was a patriot. He was trying to win the war. It wasn't a case of, should we should we do this? Should we do this? He he was saying, if we don't do this, Germany will. And and, the, and this this is what the, his main inspiration was, all through, you know, create getting involved in the project, building Los Alamos into what it was, up, until, up to the point of, you know, the Trinity test in 1945 and then, you know, beyond. His motivation was very much a case of, we need to do this because if we don't, the other side will and we could lose. And that is a very powerful motivation for even potentially creating something that, in, in moral terms, you have to stop and think, should we have gone there? Should we have opened this box? Because it did change the world. You know, n- nuclear power in the arms race and having, you know, what eventually became, you know, mutually assured destruction was set set the set the pace at the template for the entire 20th century and beyond mm, absolutely i mean yeah yeah i think i think degra in some ways has has more in common in that sense because obviously you know we find out in that season of enterprise that degra is has has only created this terrible weapon which he himself feels very conflicted about because he's he's seen the damage that's caused uh because he believes that his entire species is is under threat you know that the humans are going to to wipe them out so it's very much in the spirit of of Oppenheimer developing this weapon because he knows that the Germans are working on it too. And, you know, Heisenberg is there with his his laboratory uh, in Germany. And it's, a, you know, it's really a race to see who's who's going to annihilate the other one in a sense. So I think that comes across quite strongly there. I think there's another aspect, though, that I feel you get this somewhat off Jutrell probably more than Degra, and that is certainly true of Oppenheimer, is that there's also an element of pride and an element of ambition to be honest. I mean, I think he, you know, he, he wasn't a, a sort of, um, 
in a sense, that sort of pure image of a scientist who who only cares about the science, who who doesn't really care about himself or whatever. You know, we've talked a bit about he was this charismatic professor. He was quite a sort of personable guy. He he liked the attention. He liked the sense of of triumph, of succeeding in this great endeavour. You know, and if you read the descriptions of of what he was like um, immediately after that Trinity test uh, went off successfully, I mean, although in later years he talks about thinking of this line from the Bhagavad Gita and the kind of um, the horror of it in a sense. Um, you know, there's descriptions of him throwing his arms in the air, making these very kind of um, bombastic speeches, uh, you, you know, generally celebrating this great uh, achievement that he'd made and, and knowing that he'd sort of earned himself a place in history. And in a sense, you know, that line, it's kind of, um, you know, I'm become death destroyer of worlds. There's a kind of ambiguity there because it is this kind of terrible vision, but it's also, uh, you know, almost glorious, isn't it? It's sort of glorifying the um, destruction and the horror of it. And I think in a way there's that kind of ambiguity to Oppenheimer. You know, he he's, he's not someone who was so sort of psychologically destroyed by his creation and his and his role in this awful thing that you know he could never live with himself he was he was a lot more conflicted than that he was very proud of what he'd achieved which was an amazing achievement um he felt that he'd had good reasons for doing it at the same time obviously he couldn't get past the fact that you you know all these people had been killed and it was it was awful and they'd unleashed this kind of terrible force into the world so i suppose it's maybe just a a slightly more ambivalent, slightly more ambiguous, slightly more nuanced kind of uh, character, really, than than in some ways the kind of cultural idea of Oppenheimer, which is that we sort of assume that the scientist who's done this feels terrible about it and is wrapped with guilt for the rest of their life. And, and interestingly, you know, it, it's, I suppose, because the Nazis didn't, you know, Heisenberg didn't succeed in creating the nuclear bomb. If, if the Nazis had created the nuclear bomb and used it to, to bomb the Allies, you know, it would fit easily with our kind of narratives about the Second World War, which are obviously you know, almost exclusively about kind of Nazi brutality, about the Holocaust, about all these terrible things. You know, the Second World War is this kind of rupture in in our in our kind of global society in the sense where these awful things happen. But what's interesting about this one is obviously, you know, this we, we were meant to be the good guys. This was us doing it, and it, and it was us who who created this terrible thing. And so there's a there's a lot of you know uncomfortable feelings about that. And I think in some ways they get sort of pinned onto Oppenheimer, whether or not he really wanted to be the kind of poster boy for you know sort of atomic angst and, and guilt and so on that that in some ways people kind of wanted him to be yeah absolutely it, it as i said before there there is a complexity to the man and, the, and you know as time goes on you know and as he as he gets older and has you know uh, the reflections on what he created and ultimately you know oppenheimer lived till 1967 he wasn't an old man when he died but he lived long enough to see things like you know the 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 growing arms race of the of the 1950s the cuban missile crisis you know in 1962 uh, the subsequent assassination of jfk he saw these huge events that you know were in many respects you know a consequence well they were a consequence of creating the atomic bomb so he lived to see a lot of that and i think towards his later years that you know that confliction and that that complexity to the man deepened even more so and i think it's that that kind of complexity is reflected in these two characters from Star Trek who, you know, were in many respects, not necessarily both directly, but were, you know, influenced heavily by the real life figure of Oppenheimer. So let's let's talk about Jatrell first, Maybor Jatrell, um, who appeared in the um, the episode Jatrell in uh, the first season of Star Trek Voyager. And he was a he was a doctor. He was a Harkonian scientist who was uh, crea- who created a weapon called the Metrion Cascade. Um, in 2356 that was used against the Talaxians um, on a moon called Rhinax um, in, in an attempt to end the conflict, ultimately, that had been going on. And following the use of the of the weapon, the uh, Talaxian government gave their unconditional surrender the following day and the war was over. And uh, in, in the episode Jutrell, the, the Doctor himself turns up on Voyager um, on the pretext of trying to help Neelix, who obviously is a, presents himself in this case as a, as a, as a former soldier who uh, lost people on Rhinax and has been haunted by this, you know, for many years. Uh, and, and Neelix, he tells Neelix he's dying, you know, he's dying of, po- of, of, of uh, poisoning from that event. And it, it, it immediately, the, 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 the key thing with Jatrell is all of these elements are exactly the same thing as the events in real life. You know, the Metron Cascade is the bomb. Rhinax is Nagasaki or Hiroshima. Uh, you, you know, you, you have... You have the you know the poisoning is analogous to radiation poisoning and all these different things and the the parallels are 
enormously overt, aren't they, with Jutrell straight away? It's a very sort of clear, you know, in that kind of classic Star Trek tradition, it's it's a very sort of straightforward allegory in a sense. I mean, it is their, you know, Hiroshima episode in a sense. And of course, this was 1995 when, when Voyager was debuting. Uh, I'm not sure whether this was... It may, maybe it had touched into into 96, I don't know, by the time this episode was broadcast. But, you know, basically 50 years since these events. So it's it's almost a kind of anniversary episode, I think, kind of looking at this topic and, you know, very much putting it with the Star Trek lens and finding a way to tell that story. Um, and interestingly, of course, telling that story with Neelix, who we think of as this kind of comic relief character, as a sort of a bit of a clown in a sense... And I think it's quite interesting. I mean, in some ways, they didn't have much choice because obviously it's a this is a story that takes place in the Delta Quadrant. They've only got two Delta Quadrant natives on the ship. And, you know, and they can't really tell a story like that about Kess because we know she lived underground for her whole life. And there's, there's not much there's not much sort of backstory to, to feed <laughs> off there. But, but okay. I think it's quite interesting then that they choose uh, or, or that, the, that the choice is kind of put upon them. If they want to tell that story, that it has to be Neelix's story um, because you it really helps you understand that character, I think. And it and it puts that kind of clownishness in context a bit. And and also, I think Ethan Phillips does a fantastic job in this episode. I mean, I think whenever they give Neelix more serious stuff to do, I mean, I'm thinking Mortal Coil as well, another great episode, you know, he really um, brings it to the table. And, and it's a shame in some ways that, that maybe we don't get more of that. And if we did, maybe the, the people who, who find Neelix annoying and, and kind of irritating and can't stand him uh, might, in a way, have a, a bit more sympathy for that character. But... But I think it works really well. All the stuff about his family works really well. And and I think in a way it's, you know, it's an unusual choice to tell this story with, with your comedy character um, in comparison, say, to Deep Space Nine when they had uh, the episode Duet, which this apparently was, was very consciously trying to recreate that feeling that there was in Duet of this kind of, um, you know, almost like a sort of two-person play, a lot of it, a real kind of morality tale, a really kind of deep, heavy, intense story. Um, both those episodes are the kind of penultimate episode of their first season. So it's it's sort of staking a certain kind of serious claim to say, uh, yes, it's a new show. It's, it's, you know, it's different in various ways. Maybe it's not quite as dark and serious as Deep Space Nine, but, but we can do heavy episodes. We can do serious episodes. But obviously Duet, they did a story with Kira, who's probably their most kind of anguished and angsty and serious, uh, you know, has a really dark backstory the occupation and and the resistance and so on uh and in voyager they they do it with their with their kind of clown character but really turn that on its head and, and show you it in a new light and i think it works really well i think it's a great episode yeah me too actually I, it's been many many years since i watched a trail uh possibly since you know broadcast because uh, voyager isn't I, I do like elements of voyager it's not my favorite star trek series so i don't revisit it all the time so uh it, it, it was a long time since i'd seen jatrell and I, I was impressed I, I i thought the writing was good i thought it was it doesn't it lacks the power of duet you know which you know is, is a really phenomenal episode of, of tv but it's it for, for voyager which on the on the whole so, you know skews much more towards the you know, the action-adventure axis in many respects. It doesn't often have these very heavy, intense episodes. It's it, it's impressive. It's impressively done. And the the character of Jutrell is, I mean, played by James Sloyan, who's a, who's a really good character actor anyway. He crops up in many, many different genre shows. He's He's been in, or he was uh, more a pal, I think. He was Odo's father in inverted commas on ds9 and he's he, I, I imagine he's I, i'm sure he crops the in, romulan in, um the, yes. in the defector uh, i was gonna say he was a romulan on the, next the, generation the, yes exactly yeah yeah both also great performances and, and and really interesting characters yeah absolutely he's he's got he's got this way in which he can play these kind of roles you know and i think i think he does a really good job in making jatrell a an oddly sympathetic character in in many respects in that he's He's driven, he's, in some respects, he's unapologetic in that he he did what he had to do. And I think you mentioned this earlier, you know, he's he's driven by a, you know, a, a, a simple fact of there was a war, I built something, I didn't, I didn't do it, I didn't, te- I didn't use it on people, I built it, we were trying to win a war. But then, like Oppenheimer later on in his life, Jatrell seems haunted, he seems haunted by what he's done. He suffered his own personal loss. You know, he talks about how, and what's interesting is that Jutrell and Degra both have lost like family because of uh, uh, in the subsequent of this. Jutrell lost his wife and his children. You know, they they left him. You know, he pay, he says he paid a personal cost for his science because they they said, "Well, you're a monster." You know, the cascade killed you know millions of people. You're a monster. You must be in order to create something that would cause so much you know pain. 
So he's this whole story feels like his redemption and Neelix coming to accept the lies he's been telling himself. Because obviously we find out that Neelix was actually, as he terms himself, a coward. You know, he was too afraid to fight and too afraid to go to Rhinax and, and, you know, be there. And he's been suffering survivor's guilt, really, for all this time. Although it's a bit unclear because he sort of, at first, he, he sort of represents himself as a conscientious objector. And then he he blames himself, I suppose, for what happened to his family, for the fact that he wasn't... Do you know what I mean? That That he had placed i mean the way i read it i i I think it's slightly ambiguous the episode but the way i read it is that you know to give him the benefit of the doubt maybe he was a conscientious objector but having this experience where his whole family were killed made him feel like that was a stupid position to take and that it that it was somehow cowardly to have done that i don't know i i I feel it's a bit in some ways i think that whole aspect of it slightly muddies the waters of the whole episode and i'm not i'm not quite so sure about it because it sort of brings in this whole other other aspect of the story but, but obviously that's and it gives this quite tidy uh sort of ending in a sense where Kess basically says to him in this this kind of pop psychology moment um you know maybe you're not really angry with Jatrell, maybe you're angry with yourself because because you know you weren't there and, and you feel guilty about it and I don't know for me that 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 sort of pop psychological aspect of it is the bit that that works the least well but yes um, I agree but I agree that I think it's really interesting this idea of um, of him losing, uh, you, you know, losing his family over it. I mean, as far as I know, that didn't happen to 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 Oppenheimer, but it did happen to um, the guy. I can't think of his name, but in the First World War, the German scientist who invented the uh, gas, basically, um, his wife was so horrified that she actually committed suicide because she, you know she felt her husband had, had uh, in a similar way, unleashed this this awful thing on the world and you know he probably would have said he was doing it in the name of science and also in the name of patriotism and so on so it's kind of interesting that um that that sort of tension i mean with degra i don't think that's happened but obviously there's a lot of kind of peril around his family and and you know are his family safe and so on and there's also a kind of um attention which i'm sure must have been uh real for, for for oppenheimer as well i mean i don't know if, if in your reading you've come across this but you know degra talks about having brought his wife and family you know his his two kids to live on this kind of military uh base or you know wherever it is that they're making the weapon and, and the extent to which it's taken over his life it's consumed his life for for many years i think by the point that you know we pick up the story because they launched that first probe so there is definitely a sense of the kind of cost family cost for these men and and the kind of almost obsessive requirements of a project like this i mean one of the ideas i think behind the uh the setup at los alamos and, and i think this came from oppenheimer was that part of the idea for setting it in the middle of the desert was obviously there's kind of secrecy and so on and there's the fact that he has this sentimental attachment to new mexico but there's also this idea of you know we've got to kind of basically lock these people up uh, away from any distractions away from any cities with kind of interesting things going on and it's this kind of idea of getting all these great people and um you know putting them almost in a in a, a sort of crucible where they can do their work and without distraction and without anything else going on and obviously that's not a, a very healthy environment for human beings in a sense no and and there was some really interesting tensions and and issues in you know uh, Los Alamos in that and and it's just, it's the same thing that Jatrell is describing you know that the exactly the same kind of thing you know in in the Harkonian you know creation of this bomb is what happened in real life this whole sense of of a trapped kind of community built up around Oppenheimer and this and this research in that, that it started off as, as almost like a an escape from the real world for people because they were you know they like you said they're in the middle of the desert they were miles away from anything but in the end everyone knew everybody it became very trapped certain you know it even bred its own kind of ecosystem there was a an interesting story about how the the military and there was the in in los alamos it was a general called leslie groves who was a real ball breaker by the sound of it he found out that the soldiers like the soldiers had, had had been visiting what effectively was a whorehouse of, of of certain girls and the younger women in the in the community who were you know offering their services shall we say and they stamped that out very quickly so yeah these kind of things built up around it and interestingly, you talk about family. Oppenheimer didn't lose his family, but he actually, at one point, when he's he married a, woman, a lady called Kitty, who wasn't in many respects his his one true love. That was that was a, a woman named Jean uh, Tatlock, who was a, a doctor and a scientist, who he left. He kind of had this passionate love affair with for years, and then he left her behind when he went to Los Alamos to do all this. She ended up committing suicide, not because of that directly, but he felt some level of guilt based on that. Um, and they, there was a very passionate kind of love affair. But he married uh, a lady called Kitty, who came from certain 
oddly enough, ironically, certain Germanic stock going back, you know, historically. She was a, a quite a firebrand character, and she uh, she ended up bearing him a son. But she was very distant from the from the child. She would, you know, go off and and go horseback riding and things. They both were, and it actually came to a point where Oppenheimer asked one of his, I think, one of his workers or one of his friends who was often looking after the baby if this person wanted to adopt the child, because he said, I can't love this person. I can't love this child. My devotion is to this, is to this bomb, is to this, is to the science. So it didn't happen in the end. I don't believe that the, the child was adopted as far as I know, but it got to a point where he, was, he wasn't prioritising family above everything else. Which is interesting just because, you know, with the character of Degra, so much of that character is based around the fact that he's a father. And really that's the, the kind of key to his guilt is is totally wrapped up in this idea of the fact that he's murdered children essentially you know he says that he watched the telemetry uh, of the the probe that um uh, that attacks earth that cuts a swathe through florida and, and kills uh trip tucker's sister and seven million other people um and he was sort of obsessed with this idea that that some of those people were, were children therefore they were innocent you know they they weren't the 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 kind of acceptable targets in a sense and he says to one of the others Indy at one point you know as a father it's very hard for me to to get my head around that and and really it's his children that he's trying to protect by by saving uh saving the Zindi by saving his civilization so it's very much wrapped up in that and also the fact that these kind of key things that allow Archer to bond with him are all wrapped up with his children as well. You know, he um, he knows the names of the two children uh, at, a, at a key point. That's how he gets Degra's attention, but because they've had this episode where uh, they've wiped his memory and, and Archer's constructed this uh, fake scenario where they were in prison together. Um, and, he, and he also knows this fact that he obviously hasn't told many people about uh, a baby that he and his wife had that miscarried. And the fact that Archer knows that, again, is this kind of um, talisman, in a sense, of their of their close relationship. So I feel like again and again with, with Degra, it sort of comes back to children. It comes back to his the conflict between him as a father and seemingly a very loving father and him as a scientist who's doing this terrible thing which involves, you know, child killing in a sense. Um, and there's an interesting, slightly strange parallel, I think, actually, in, in that series of Enterprise um, with Archer because in many ways the two of them are set up they're, they're almost a mirror for each other. I mean, what, what we get, uh, and we get this a bit with Jutrell, and obviously, you, you know, Oppenheimer might have said this too, but what Degra keeps saying is, look, I did what I had to do. I didn't like it. I wasn't proud of it. You, you know, I, I felt terrible about certain aspects of it, but this was what I had to do. Archer in season three of Enterprise constantly saying, I did what I had to do. You know, he says it to the guy whose warp coils he steals. He's, he says it over and over again. It becomes this sort of mantra, basically. Uh, he, he says it even right at the end of season two, I think, when they, they go off into the expanse and Trip says to him, um, tell me we're not going to pussyfoot around, basically. We're going to, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to do things the Vulcan way. We're going to kind of kick ass sort of thing and, and kind of really take this to, to the enemy and he, he says then you know we'll do whatever's necessary we'll do what we have to and so I think in a sense there's this kind of parallel built up between them but there's this interesting episode which is I think not a great episode it's a bit of a weird one hatchery where Archer gets um, imprinted on by these uh, alien um, this Indian sectoids and this Indian sectoid babies and he becomes very kind of protective of them but there's this whole kind of discussion there about whether it's wrong because they know they're the enemy also they're, they're insects so they're kind of disgusting and weird and creepy and so on but is it morally acceptable to kill these alien babies basically even though they're the babies of the enemy and an archer although he's not really himself is sort of saying no you know there are certain things we don't do we don't kill children even in a war we we go to any lengths to try and avoid uh you know child casualties and so on and in some ways i think with degra it's it's almost the fact that he he has killed all these innocents and he has killed these human children that that is kind of keeps being brought back is is almost for me, that's sort of where this sense comes from, that however much he turns things around, however much he tries to help them, you kind of know he's going to die in the end. You kind of know from a sort of narrative point of view, he's going he's gonna to have to get it because he's, he's not going to be let off for those crimes. However guilty he feels, however much he tries to make reparations, you know, however much even someone like Tripp, who's been personally, you know, deeply affected by the loss of his sister and so on, can kind of you know, almost come to a point of maybe not forgiving him, but sort of accepting what's happened to some degree, that there are these certain things that are, he's never going to get to go beyond. And I feel like repeatedly this kind of emphasis on children is is one of them. Yeah, ab absolutely. And it, it's it, it's interesting you mentioned, because um, obviously for, for those of you who don't remember, Degra 
was the creator of the Zindi weapon, which in the, at the end of season two of Enterprise cuts a sway through Florida and kills, you know, many, many people. And then obviously leads to Archer leading the Enterprise into the Delphic Expanse in Season 3, which is the overarching story of the entire season, to stop the, the bigger Zindi weapon, which is going to be targeted to destroy Earth, because they've been told that they will uh, that the Federation, well, what will be the Federation, we don't know it's Federation yet, will destroy the Zindi in the 26th century. So in the 300 years, they're trying to prevent what they've been told... And they're being manipulated by the sphere builders, you know, and the, and the temporal Cold War stuff going on. But they're, they've been told that if you don't destroy these people first, they will destroy you. And what is interesting in the sense of what Degra is, is asked to build, and then his whole, his whole moral quandary about this, um, within a very, you know, hardline militaristic rest of the Zindi Council, who are very much all the way, pretty much all the way through, the majority of them are like, we have to do this. And they're all from all the different areas of the Zindi, you know, whether they're primates, whether they're insectoids, all of them, they're all singing from the same hymn sheet in many respects in that we need to do this. And what's really interesting is that the whole idea comes back to the same thing which is which was happening in the real world with Oppenheimer and the, and the Germans. It's that whole idea with the Zindi, we have to do this, otherwise they will destroy us. And it becomes that sort of, that standoff almost. But then every time two things happen, in both the cases of Jatrell ultimately and Degra, although Degra gets there while it's happening, they both feel that sense of that they shouldn't morally do this, that there are bigger moral you know, questions, that it's, it's a weight on their soul that they've actually killed all these people and, 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 and that they both die and that ultimately Degra is, is murdered and Jatrell dies. And he dies because of his creation as well because he dies yes. of, the, of the radiation poisoning that he, in a sense, has unleashed through, through making this. So there's, I suppose there's a kind of poetic justice in a sense. You know, yeah, certainly, certainly for Jutrell, I think. But with uh, and with Degra, it's a, it's a very different kind of death. But they they're on what's what's we, we've talked about this before. What's interesting is that they're on the same path, but they're on different sort of versions of it in many respects. In that Jutrell, when we when we meet him, he's years after the event, facing his own demons, as you know, reflected in what Neelix goes through and what he faces. But then Degra is in the middle of it; he's in the thick of it there, there and then. It's being asked that ultimate moral question, as, you, as you're about to do this, should you do this? Is this right? Are you actually going to kill millions of people? What's it for? Ultimately, based on a lie in the end, or based on you know lack of truth. But it's a different story with the same point, isn't it, ultimately? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, I suppose that's an interesting point, that it's not so much about... I mean, there is a certain amount of it is about his kind of guilt over the probe that's that's killed seven million people which obviously is a you know an unimaginable horrific uh thing but but it's true the focus is more on because that that's the sort of ticking time bomb from a, a plot point of view you know in this season of enterprises this this weapon's going to be launched that's going to destroy the whole planet the focus is much more on the, on the thing that he's about to do and on him basically deciding not to do that and deciding to kind of take a different path I mean, one of the other things I think is interesting about Degra, we talked a little bit about Jatrell as this kind of, almost this kind of anniversary episode, uh, 50 years later, looking back at the legacy of the Second World War. Something that actually, I mean, this is something we might touch on in future episodes. Voyager, surprisingly, quite frequently deals with uh, Second World War issues. I mean, we think of Deep Space Nine as being all about um, the Holocaust and about the the, the Nazis and the, the treatment of, of Jews or of, of other uh you know, groups that they that they felt were beneath them and so on and the concentration camps. But but actually Voyager touches on comparable issues in, in various ways sort of over the years. But I suppose what's interesting to me about the Degra situation is it feels to me watching it like it's it's almost uh, there's a kind of element of sleight of hand there. It's quite a clever trick that by bringing in this character, they sort of change the the rules of engagement in a way of that story. I mean, when you have the Zindi attack from the probe in um, that final episode of the second season it's a very clear 9-11 allegory um very explicit you know and this is happening only a couple of years after 9-11 and the kind of rhetoric of that whole season quite controversially this whole uh you know we'll have to we'll do whatever it takes we'll kind of break the rules we'll in the first or second episode of that season archer is basically waterboarding a prisoner uh by threatening him you you know chucking him in the airlock and removing the oxygen and so on um there's this quite uncomfortable sense that 
that Star Trek is going in, you, you know, it's really kind of throwing the moral compass out the window in a sense. It's saying if the situation is bad enough, then then all those kind of moral questions, all those kind of moral certainties we have about what we do as humans or as the Federation, I know it's not the Federation, you, you know, etc., uh, sort of go out the window. And, and a lot of people felt quite uncomfortable about it at the time. I mean, I um, uh, saw an interview with John Billingsley, who plays Dr. Flox, and he, as a as a longtime Star Trek fan, had a lot of problems with this and, and felt that it was... Um, you know maybe it was topical but that it was kind of morally they were taking the wrong position in a sense and I think what they do with Degra quite cleverly is is by making this Oppenheimer character at the centre of it and kind of by sort of twisting the narrative round so you can see it from his point of view and you can see it in a sort of World War II context rather than a war on terror context is that changes it all because you know, the feelings that we have about World War Two are very different from the feelings that we have about about the war on terror and the kind of contemporary conflict. And so in a way, they managed to, um, as Brandon Braga said in, in one of the interviews where he was sort of defending that whole storyline, he was sort of saying, well, yeah, maybe it starts off as this, um, he called it the, the, the kill the terrorists story, basically. But it ends up in this place of, of making peace, of kind of, you know, Archer and Degra forming this bond of this kind of optimistic sort of Star Trek message in the end. And the way they managed to do that, you know, looking at, at what we're talking about, about history and culture and, and bringing our, our culture to bear on it, is through this kind of trick almost of starting off telling a 9-11 allegory and then switching it and telling a World War II allegory because that kind of offers a, a route out of that impossible situation that they've got themselves into in a way morally speaking yeah absolutely that's 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 really that's really interesting way of looking at it it's very true and it it's it allows them to give both the characters of jutrell and degra in their own separate ways that element of redemption he feels like the writers are very keen to almost give them what oppenheimer never quite got in many respects that 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 point of you know jutrell when he turns up on voyager his ultimate goal, you know, at the end, it seems like, you know, he's up to no good. But his ultimate goal is to try and reconstruct and reconstitute the... He's admittedly quite a far-fetched idea, even even for, you know, Star Trek. But he's trying to reconstitute the atomic structure of these people who were destroyed on Rhinax. Who were, it's, it's the equivalent of Oppenheimer having gone to Japan, you know, in 1963... Um, with technology that allowed him to bring back all the people in Nagasaki who were just, you know, obliterated by the bomb, you know, and actually trying to, you know, and saying to the people there, I can bring these people back, you know, if if I made it, you know, I, I created something horrible, it didn't almost mean what it should have meant, and I, I can bring these people back, and then he dies at the end having been able to be forgiven by the very symbol of the people he he destroyed, you know, when Neelix says, I forgive you at the very end, he is admittedly forgiving himself, but he's also forgiving Jutrell. And with Degra, it's that case of his redemption comes in the fact that he's man- he manages to convince almost all of the Zindi Council that Archer's right, that, you know, they are being manipulated. This, they, they, they don't need to do this to Earth. And it's only the uh, the Dolium character who's the one who ends up taking it. He, he's the hardliner. He's the one who ends up trying to take it on and, and, and destroy the planet and everything like that. And it, he becomes the, your, your ultimate villain in the end. But it's they both achieve that level of redemption and die for it in many respects. And I think the writers were very keen for that to happen, to give it a, 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 an almost an almost tragic arc to, character, to a character who was based on a man who had a certain tragedy to, to his life, even though he's, you know, he'll always be remembered. There is a certain tragedy to everything, as, as you know, they were all the, the destroyer of worlds. Well, literally, I mean, in, I mean, Jatrell and Degra, that, that is precisely what they are, you know. Um, whether that's Rhinax or, or Earth, really, there. Uh, yeah. That's what they're working to do is to, to to destroy those worlds. I mean, there's also this kind of thing about understand. I suppose sort of understanding your enemy, understanding your enemy's motivation. I mean, when, when this India attack happens, and just to go back to the kind of nine eleven uh, allegory it seems incomprehensible do you know what i mean why who are these people why have they attacked earth mm. they see and all we know about them is that they want to completely obliterate our civilization they want to sort of wipe our culture off the face of the earth and it's only later that we learn that they believe that they're doing it in terms of um you know sort of self-preservation and so on and that they, they feel it's a sort of preemptive strike to to save themselves and i suppose that's um you know that that it changes very much our understanding of who these people are and why they've done this terrible thing uh, to us. That that to begin with is just so incomprehensible, so inexplicable. You know, which I guess in those scenes in that early episode uh, that uh, when the attack first takes place at the end of season two, there is a real kind of nine eleven feeling of, of that kind of 
not just horror, but sort of bewilderment and kind of shock mm. and kind of, you know, who are these people and what do they have against us? Why do they hate us so much that they would that they would do these things? And kind of, you know, particularly from a kind of American perspective, I think really just struggling to to comprehend that, that and to comprehend. I mean, and you know, it's not just an American thing. You know, we we all suffer from these days from Islamic you know, or Islamist terror attacks and so on. And I think there is that kind of struggle to understand, you know, why does this person on the tube or this person at, you know, at Westminster recently, why does that person want to kill me? Do you know what I mean? If, if I'm mm. the one who happens to be there. And it is something that's very hard to to grapple with. And in a way, by by constructing this character of Degra and constructing this kind of backstory and this kind of World War II allegory, they, they kind of um, get away from that and get it into a into an area where we can kind of understand where he's coming from and, and, and sympathise with him very much. And I think, I think that's one of the key things. It's, it's absolutely true. And I think that's one of the key things with Star Trek and one of the things that makes, you know, even even if you know, the Enterprise story, especially with Degra and with that whole season three arc, is to many people quite intense, not necessarily Star Trek in its construction. I think ultimately it is in the sense of what it's trying to say is that, you know, we can reach that point of understanding. We can reach that, you know, that, that rapprochement, you know, in which we get there and we, we figure each other out and that we, we can talk about it, we can sit down and talk about it, you know, and in order for the for the season to have a villain, as I mentioned, they need somebody, they need a hardliner, they need a, an extremist to go out there and still try and, you know, finish the job. But in many respects that Archer is able to go there after after some, you know, some turmoil and going through it, he's able to sit down with these people and say, this is who we are, this is what's actually going on, you know, you don't have to do this, which is something that, you know, and it reflects in our real world anxieties, even now, you know, Enterprise, this, this story was happening in like 2004, 2003, 2004. If anything, now we feel even more anxious and even more, you know, worried about where, you know, modern terrorism, where modern, you know, politics is going in that it's, we seem to be moving further and further away from understanding each other. And I think Star Trek in this circumstance and what, you know, Brandon Braga and Rick Berman specifically wanted to do is to tell a, a tell a story, Manny Cota, obviously, to tell a story which said, "We can, we can figure this out. We can figure this out, even with this horrible, you know, weapon and with these threats of obliteration. We can figure out a better way." I, I really like the Degra character. I mean, I don't know about you, I, I really loved Trail as an episode. I think I understand why why some people have a lot of problems with um, season three of Enterprise, and I do think. That, there are quite a few missteps in that season, maybe, but but I don't think Degra is one of them. I think Degra is one of the things that really saves that story, that makes it that makes it work, and also that, like you said, that makes it Star Trek in a sense, um, where in some ways that season was kind of veering, <laughs> sort of veering slightly uh, dangerously away from kind of what we understand Star Trek to be, and really that that storyline kind of helps to pull it back. It's, it's also I was thinking about this thing you were saying about Archer kind of making this personal connection with him. I mean, there's this sense at various points in Enterprise that Archer is this kind of historic character he's this kind of linchpin of history he has he has this important role to fulfill you know as we know in the kind of temporal Cold War context and even in this season we see um in the episode Twilight we see this kind of potential future where Archer's out of action and T'Pol is in charge of this mission and she do- she doesn't manage it, you know, basically. So there's this kind of sense of what what is it that Archer's got that she hasn't? What is it that Archer's got that's going to enable him to succeed in this mission? And I mean, I think Archer is problematic as a Star Trek captain. You know, he's he's not Captain Picard. He's not Captain Jane. He's not even, you know, Captain Kirk or Captain Sisko. He's, he, he, there's something a bit folksy, a bit kind of often a bit sort of clueless about him. He's He's very much kind of finding his way a bit, you, you, you know, he, he doesn't have that kind of authoritative command in some ways that, that some of the captains do. But I think one of the things that's quite good about this story is they, they they sort of find a way finally of playing to his strengths. And, you know, he does have this ability to kind of form a, a bond with this man, even though he's the enemy. He has this ability to kind of um, meet him in the middle somehow, um, to kind of, for them to understand each other. And obviously we see that in season four as well, that, you, you know, his role in, in the kind of formation of the sort of incipient federation and bringing these different races together he's quite sort of inoffensive archer he's quite people seem to get on with him even someone like shran who's very antagonistic forms has this kind of respect for him and and really this sort of seems like this sort of comes out as as almost his kind of defining characteristic as a captain is this is this sort of interpersonal skill in a way and 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 that's what enables the solution of this 
of this seemingly impossible situation because I suppose that's the thing about this indie arc is it's it just it seems like their mission is is completely hopeless you know they're up against the odds are so stacked against them and so many things go wrong and there are so many problems and 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 so much of this and you know but they do ultimately manage to to solve the problem but not in the way that they were expecting and Tripp says in in one of the episodes I think shortly before Degra dies, where they're, where they're talking to him, he was expecting, he sort of says, basically, I expect us to go in guns blazing. I thought we were going to find a kind of military solution to this problem. Uh, and they've kind of suggested that by bringing the Makos on board and beefing everything up a bit and making it, beefing up the action and so on. But actually what they find is a diplomatic solution, which isn't really what, what anyone's expecting to be the outcome of that story going into it. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's interesting that there are strong hints with Archer, and this may well have become, and I, I'm not as I'm not hu- familiar enough with the follow-on books and things like that. But there's a strong hint, I think, that he becomes the Federation president one day. I think the that's first right. Yeah, I think that's Federation right. president, and and it could well be at the end of um, these the voyages we see that. But I think I think this episode proves it. You know, Zero Hour proves it, and and how season three wraps up in that he is that guy you can go in there and you know and, and make that. You know, that, that understanding with the the Oppenheimer kind of character and with that with that that species and 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 reach as I said and reach a compromise reach a better way and reach that that one thing that you know on the flip side in Voyager you know the the Talaxians and the and the Harkonnens never really did you know and you, you had that thing that character much later on finding his own you know trying to find his own sense of redemption so I think I think it's it, they're two very interesting very different but very interesting characters on a similar course at different stages of their life in very different situations with very different reasons but do you think that finally do you think that the allegory works for both of these characters I think it works I, I mean I suppose I'd say yeah I, I I really like both these characters I think they're both really interesting so I think it works in that sense I mean I think in terms of Jatrell, it's a very sort of straightforward, conventional Star Trek allegorical take on a real story, um, and that's not that's not a bad thing. I think it's it's done very well. With Jatrell, you even um, get uh, direct quotations essentially from Oppenheimer. He uses the words "brighter than a thousand suns" to describe the weapon, which is very uh, similar to the phrase "the radiance of a thousand suns," which comes from the Bhagavad Gita, from the, the quote that you mentioned earlier, and also the the, the positions that he articulates about um, you know the value of science, about the the, the the level of his responsibility, about who is making the decisions. There's a discussion uh, in Jutrell about um, Neelix says couldn't you have just given a demonstration of this weapons power without killing anyone or couldn't you have chosen a military target and these were debates that were being had at the time as they were preparing to drop the weapon on Japan and basically what Jutrell says is kind of the the position that the US Army took that they needed to prove how devastating this weapon was and, uh, and just a demonstration you know that didn't kill anyone wouldn't cut it it wouldn't end the war in the way that you know in both in both World War Two, you know, very soon after the second bomb was dropped, the Japanese finally surrendered. We we heard in the case of the Voyager episode the very next day, I think they said that they surrendered. You know, it wouldn't have had that that impact. So I think Jatrell works on quite a sort of straightforward allegorical level. Degra, I think, I think it works insofar as I think that character works, and I think that character obviously is is inspired by Oppenheimer, but also in a sense, as as I've sort of said earlier is inspired by this kind of idea of Oppenheimer as this guilt-wracked scientist that that maybe is a bit of an exaggeration and, and sort of doesn't really take into account the it's not that Degra isn't complex I mean I think Degra, Degra is a complex character but in that respect it kind of definitely pushes um in that particular direction and and, and that's the way that they saw it uh, there, there's an interview with Brannon Braga where he says we knew we wanted to create an Oppenheimer-like character this is the quotation. He was the mastermind behind building the bomb, very committed to his species, but racked with guilt, just like Oppenheimer. Now, whether or not we think that Oppenheimer is rightly described as racked with guilt or not, uh, is, a, as we've sort of talked about, a, a complex question. You know, there was an element of, you know, he, he wasn't completely unmoved by by that side of it and by the kind of moral responsibility of it. But he also you know, didn't necessarily regret what he'd done or, or, or even think that they'd done the wrong thing. I mean, as far as he was concerned, they'd saved many uh, American soldiers who would otherwise have been killed and, and that ultimately was their job. So I, I think that Degra works uh, in a slightly different way 
maybe as less of a kind of precise allegory, but but more in terms of kind of, as I said earlier, sort of moving the the narrative in a different direction and giving us different perspective. And as you said, bringing in this kind of element of redemption and this element of kind of rapprochement and um, and kind of building bridges and really finding a, a sort of Star Trek solution to what seemed to be a very un-Star Trek problem. Yeah, definitely. And and putting those moral questions, which is what Star Trek does so well, putting those moral questions front and centre while still telling a good story, you know, and in Enterprise, it's a much more action-packed, you know, fast-paced story as as befits, you know, more modern television. With Jatrell, it's much more of a, you know, of a, of a, a stage play in a way. It's it's as you said before, it's almost like a two-hander in many respects, in often with with those characters. So it's it's two very different approaches to to a really great allegory and a really important one, I think, for Star Trek to tell, especially in this day and age. If you, if anyone wants more information on the uh, the Man of Oppenheimer, I heartily recommend a book that I've been reading called American Prometheus by Kai Birds, which is a, a a book that took twenty five years to write. So you can imagine how uh, <laughs> how huge this is, and it is Oppenheimer's complete life story. It tell it talks right from his birth all the way to his death, and covers all of these different things. And it is a truly fascinating book, which gets into all kinds of things in terms of you know the, his his physics the atom bomb his communist leanings and all the all the kind of things that are rippling under with that there's, there's tons tons in it so i hugely recommend that if you want a little bit more information about the man who inspired these these really great star trek characters i would just add to that um a, a recommendation slightly uh more equivocal maybe than tony's um for if you're interested in the character oppenheimer there's there's a movie which uh it goes by a couple of names um it's either called fat man and little boy which is a reference to the, the name of the bombs or or it goes under the name shadow makers which is a, a slightly better title maybe but um what's interesting about it is it, it shows you the the story of los alamos it shows you the story of oppenheimer and the development of the bomb and also some of the other scientists who are around at the time and some of the uh, civilians, nurses and other people working on that site. And, and it, it does deal with a lot of the kind of um, moral questions, uh, while I, I think painting a, a reasonably accurate representation of Oppenheimer and, and his own kind of um, ethical and, and moral position. The other reason to watch it, if you're a Star Trek fan, is that uh, Oppenheimer is played by Dwight Schultz, um, alias uh, Reginald <laughs> oh, Barclay, um, and is a surprisingly good kind of leading man. Really, I mean, he's he's you know he's a bit anguished, he's a bit sort of um, he, you know you know he's a bit of a kind of genius character, I suppose. So he's got that sort of intellectual, slightly awkward intellectual side, but he is also very much the kind of charismatic leader, the kind of um, you know all those things that we talked about. And it's um, whatever you think of the film, I mean, it's a slightly I'd say it's a slightly sort of workmanlike, t- tending towards the slightly boring side. But it is it, it is an interesting <laughs> story. It's well made. It's a well made film, and it's a great central performance by Dwight Schultz. So if you're if you're interested in him and you're interested in the story, then um, definitely worth checking that out. Well, brilliant. I'm I'm definitely going to look that up um, for extra you know uh, extra stuff with. Uh, with Oppenheimer, once I finish my book, <laughs> once oh, I finish yeah. American Prometheus, <laughs> which I'll be still doing for a while. But yeah, uh, do do look at those things, guys, if you want a bit of extra context for the kind of things we've been talking about today. So, well, we, we hope you've enjoyed this first episode of Primitive Culture. I think we've enjoyed uh, bat- batting these issues around and talking about these these characters and these this little slice of history. So yeah, we'll be back very soon, won't we, Duncan, for uh, some more uh, cultural and historical trek we sure yeah, will. <laughs> Look forward to it. Yeah, me too. Me too. Absolutely. But uh, primitive culture, of course, isn't the only thing that's been happening on Trek FM uh, right now. So let's have a look at what else has been happening this week on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Best of both worlds. It's a good episode. I, episodes. I, I enjoyed it. I remember when it first took off. Family was a hundred times better to me. I'd watch Family... Ten times to one over watching Best of Both Worlds or Inner Light. Those are the types of things that interest me. And I do enjoy the action-adventure pieces of it. I truly do. But I, I love seeing the characters. And that's why Wrath of Khan works. Warp 5. It was just mesmerizing to me. And I remember when my, my dad, a long time ago, had an airplane. He would take us up flying, but never, you know, we'd hold the wheel and say, hey, we're flying an airplane. But I never really was bitten by the flying bug. But it happened right there on a runway in Hawaii, on Oahu. The 602 Club. And we saw it in the first Alien as well. I mean, like the company sent them to yes. yep. to, to yep. the planet to bring that alien back, right? And uh, I, I didn't remember the part where 
in this film where Burke sent the the colonists to go and find the ship on his own without authority from the company. I had forgotten that part. So that was kind of an interesting revelation seeing this movie for the first time in 12 or 13 years, however long it's been since I've seen this. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can find Duncan and I on the Babel Conference as well, and you can find us both on Twitter Duncan at Barrett's Books and myself, Tony, at Black Hole Media. And you can also find me hosting my own podcast, the Xcast and X-Files podcast, if you type that into Twitter and Facebook. So thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended all right. Remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita.